0: Hello, Health Investor. Welcome to another episode of the Health Investment Podcast. Today, you're going to hear from Carly Hayes. Carly is a nutrition manager at NutriSense, a company using personalized data to help anyone achieve their health potential. With a passion for cooking and food early on, Carly originally wanted to be a professional chef. Combining food and her deep desire to connect with and help others, she followed her great-grandmother's footsteps in the path to becoming a registered dietitian. Her training at Western Illinois University and an internship at the Memphis VA Hospital led her to a career in outpatient counseling and bariatric nutrition therapy. In these positions, Carly realized many of the disease states her patients suffered with were actually preventable by addressing diet and lifestyle first. She knew she had to dig deeper into preventative health, which led her to NutriSense and continuous glucose monitoring. With her love for food, experience in behavioral counseling, and a little help from real time technology, Carly is on a mission to stop preventable diseases and help people live their healthiest lives. In the episode, she shares why glucose spikes matter for everyone, how to eat foods in different combinations and orders to mitigate glucose spikes, short and long-term effects of -of out-of-control blood sugar, and more. But before we get to the episode, I want to share one of my favorite resources with you, Dry Farm Wines. If you're a wine lover like me, but haven't yet made the switch to natural wines, listen up because natural wines can change your life. You see, alcohol manufacturers aren't required to post ingredients or nutrition facts on their bottles, which is how they're able to sneak in sugar and other additives. Fortunately, Dry Farm Wines has come to the rescue. Their natural wines are lab-tested to ensure they're sugar-free, lower in sulfites and alcohol, and also free from other industrial additives. Since I've grown accustomed to drinking natural wine, even the most expensive conventional wines can give me headaches and just make me feel kind of gross. If you've never tried Dry Farm Wines, you're going to be immediately hooked by the flavor and quality of their products, as well as their top-notch customer service. To get a bottle of Dry Farm Wines for a penny, visit dryfarmwines.com thehealthinvestment the health investment or just click through the link in the show notes. And one more thing, if you've been yo-yo dieting for years, but nothing you've tried has helped you keep the weight off long-term, I'm so happy you're hearing this right now. Outside of hosting this podcast, I help people lose weight for the last time without giving up carbs, counting every calorie, drinking meal replacement shakes, or other unsustainable extremes. Unlike diets, apps, and programs that only provide short term results and suck the fun out of life, I help you make evidence based habit changes and mindset shifts so you can drop those pesky pounds for good, feel completely in control around all foods and start showing up as the trimmest, healthiest, most confident, most energized version of yourself. Learn more about my programs at thehealthinvestment.com, and please don't hesitate to reach out if you have any questions. I always love hearing from you. All right, it's time to hear from Carly. Enjoy! Simonson, Certified Nutrition Coach and your host of the Health Investment Podcast. If you're ready to look and feel your best without any confusion, frustration, or stress, you're in the right place. Each week, I interview experts and share no-nonsense, research-backed tips so that you can finally lose weight for good, eat healthy long-term, have the high energy you crave, and feel like a million bucks. I'm so happy you're here with me today. Don't forget to hit subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Hi, Carly. Thank you so much for joining me today
1: on the Health Investment Podcast. Hi, Brooke. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here.
0: I was just telling you that I sent you a bunch of questions, probably over a dozen, because I'm a very inquisitive person. I like to learn as much as possible. But a lot of the questions were inspired by a previous interview I had with Jessie Inshaw Spey, who listeners may remember. She called she goes by the glucose goddess. I think it's just at glucose goddess on Instagram. And she talked about her personal experience wearing a CGM and different data she gets from it. Um, So I will link that episode for those listening. If you want to get even more details about CGMs, I'll put that in the show notes. But I'm really excited to talk to you, Carly, kind of following up from that episode and learn even more.
1: Yes, I love that. We love Glucose Goddess and her visuals that she puts out. So I'm really, really excited to continue on this really important topic.
0: I'd love if you could start by sharing, first of all, what led you to become a dietitian, and then secondly, to work with CGMs and work at NutriSense.
1: Yeah, definitely. So, as a background, I am a traditionally trained registered dietitian. So, I went to school for it. I had my internship in dietetics. And really, from a very early age, I've just always loved food and I've always loved science. So, that was the a profession that seemed best equipped to put those two loves together and really just make a difference in the world. I have this intrinsic need to serve and to help others. And I think this really fulfills me in that way. So from the very start of my career, I started out in a very traditional outpatient setting. So I know as as you might um, experience as well, I was counseling individuals on how to uh, manage chronic lifestyle related conditions but where I was at really wasn't a functional approach. So kind of the, the way it would happen is individuals would come to me after seeing their doctor, typically with a new diagnosis of some sort. So that whether that be maybe a new diabetes diagnosis or pre-diabetes, which as you know, affects you know 30% of the population, but it could also be celiac disease or maybe they just wanted to lose weight. And um, I loved working with those people. I really loved my job there. But what I started to get frustrated with is I was always the last referral, right? Nutrition was always the piece of the puzzle that was addressed last. You know, it would go lab work, then the diagnosis, and then let's work on your lifestyle. And that just seemed kind of like we were putting the cart before the horse, right? We know, um, and I've kind of dove into this a little bit more with my research since then, that a lot of these conditions, you know, like, chronic lifestyle-related conditions don't just happen overnight. They don't just happen at that diagnosis. They happen years, maybe even decades earlier is when they start to develop and kind of have those early warning signs. And from a preventative standpoint, we have the most um, impact during that stage, we can make the biggest difference if we address lifestyle and nutrition early, early on. So I started to ask myself, uh, you know, what is the best way that I can address these issues before they become diagnosis, right? How can we reverse this order of operations so that I can serve people a little bit better? Um, And then I became really hyper focused on uh, functional health and just promoting preventative health and that's where cgms really came in Nutrisense was a really early company just starting out and they were using continuous glucose monitoring or cgms to really get at the heart of that that preventative health and make those changes early on Um, and i was i remember reaching out and saying you know if you ever need a dietitian i'm your girl and sure enough before we started seeing members back in 2019 i was the first dietitian they brought on And I've been there ever since. It's been the most rewarding thing of my career. So I'm really excited to share a little bit about that with you and your audience.
0: That's always nice when you reach out to somebody and say, hey, if you ever need this, and then they actually need that.
1: (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, definitely. Um, It was a, a really, really great move.
0: So if somebody's listening and we've said CGM, and you just mentioned that stands for continuous glucose monitoring, can you explain? How does that work in the first place? And then why do glucose spikes matter?
1: Definitely. I think that's a really good starting point. And what I always like to touch on first is what people feel more familiar with when we talk about glucose. So everyone has probably known someone with diabetes that had to monitor their glucose at some point. And usually what's used is a finger prick device, right? You prick your finger either first thing in the morning to get your fasting glucose, or maybe right before you eat to get your preprandial glucose, maybe after you eat to see how your glucose responds to that meal. Um, And that's just kind of a point of care contact. That's one single measurement, one moment in time that shows you your glucose. And you can get a lot of information from that. But what we're missing is kind of the nuances of glucose. Right. We think about glucose as a metric. This is our body's fuel source. So monitoring glucose can tell us how well our metabolism is working how our bodies are responding to diet or exercise or any of the other lifestyle factors that we have in our day-to-day lives. So monitoring that can be what I think is the lowest hanging fruit to give you the best benefit to make those preventative changes. So what a CGM is, is exactly how it sounds. It's a continuous glucose monitor. So instead of that finger prick where you just get one point of information, one snapshot of data, that continuous glucose monitor Which is about the size of three quarters stacked on top of each other, that you insert into the back of your arm, that will monitor your glucose for 14 days straight. So you activate it in your arm, and it's important to note that no (laughs) needle stays in your arm. It's just a tiny little microfilament that measures your glucose all day long, 24 7. So instead of that snapshot, you kind of get this time lapse of data. So you can see. your entire response to all of your meals. You can see how your glucose is responding to your sleep, uh, stress, uh, your exercise, right? You don't have to prick your finger, which is just not very fun for most people Mm -hmm. if you're doing it multiple times a day, but you're able to access that information and see it kind of from that time-lapse standpoint. And so when we start to really dive into that, we can see that glucose matters not only for those that have diabetes, but for People just actively trying to improve their health and make a difference in their metabolism. So like I mentioned, our glucose is our body's fuel source. And when we're monitoring it, we want to keep it in a very, very tightly controlled range. So our body works really, really hard to keep it in that range. So when we see these glucose spikes going above the ideal level or even below where we need to be, that's a sign that there might be an issue there. You know, our body's trying to regulate it, and there's something preventing it. Sometimes that's just what we're eating, right? Sometimes that's the standard American diet and just um, the foods that we're faced with every single day. Sometimes that's chronic stress that we, a lot of us, suffer from. Sometimes that's inactivity or just maybe a sign that our diet style is not working for us, and we need to try something different. So monitoring that can kind of point us in the right direction, right? There's a lot of nutrition noise out there and it's hard to know which noise to follow or to listen to. And the CGM is kind of that signal that tells you, hey, this is where we see an issue. Maybe this is where we should start. And I think that gives you just more of a structure and um, that way you're listening to your body's data instead of um, someone else that might not know exactly what your body needs. Hmm.
0: Are there different responses in between people in terms of their glucose readings from the monitor?
1: 100%. Yes. So this is probably the thing that was most surprising when I first started to wear CGMs. You know, I, I use the example a lot that um, my coworker and I, she was the other dietitian that first started at this company. You know, we're very, very similar. We're similar age. We're similar body size. We're both really, really active and like to do strength training And we would have the exact same meal and have very drastically different responses. There's a lot of reasons behind this. Um, A couple of the main ones are first your metabolic health. Um, You know, some people have different insulin sensitivity. So you might have just a genetic baseline that determines how you're going to respond from your glucose, but also your microbiome, right? There's been a lot of studies recently that have been really interesting that shows the composition of your microbiome or your gut health can influence how you respond to a single food. So my coworker and I, when we would both have um, sweet potatoes is probably the example that I love to use the most. She would always spike outside of glucose range and I would have hardly any response at all. And if you think about sweet potatoes, that's kind of a food that is generally accepted as a quote unquote healthy food. But that just goes to show that Not all foods are created equal because we have to take into account these genetic, these microbiome differences that influence our responses. Um, So I respond really well to sweet potatoes and I can include those in my diet, uh, but my coworker really has to control her portion size and maybe time those in times where she's a little more insulin sensitive, which we can get into a little bit, but there's a huge difference there. Which is why we're so passionate about personalized nutrition, right? There's no one size fits all diet. And you kind of have to experiment and see what works for you to know what's right for you.
0: Mm-hmm. What so when are the times that you uh, or she has figured out she's more insulin sensitive? Is it after better sleep or you know, when she's been more active?
1: Yes. Yes, you touched on two really, really great factors there. So I guess it, it might be kind of helpful to talk about What influences glucose in general? And I always think of it very simply as there are four main pillars. Keep in mind, there's always other influencers, but these are the big four. The first one is food. So we know that sweet potatoes was the food, but with food that also encompasses what you're eating, the portion size, how you're eating. So if you're eating mindfully, and then of course, when you're eating. So what my coworker found is that she could tolerate sweet potatoes a lot better earlier than the day versus later in the day. And this is because our insulin sensitivity, so how we respond um, to that meal is going to really, really closely be aligned with our circadian rhythm. So we have the best insulin sensitivity in the middle of the day during daylight hours. Um, We have the lowest insulin sensitivity in the middle of the night during those nighttime hours. And what that all means is that you might have a very, very large response to a sweet potato, for instance, later in the evening, if you're eating it in the middle of the night, but you could very well respond perfectly fine to that food when you time it earlier in the day. And so that's something that you can experiment with and leverage it so that you can find ways to, you know, eat your favorite foods, enjoy sweet potatoes in a way that works with your insulin sensitivity. Those other pillars, exercise, which is a huge one, right? A lot of times uh, when we're exercising we can improve our response to a meal so when we think about glucose it's stored in a couple different places but the main two that i always like to touch on are the liver right Um, and the muscle so we don't have as much control over the glucose that our liver burns through some control but not as much we have a lot of influence over our muscle glucose so we store that glucose in our muscle as glycogen so whenever we're using those muscles, we can really, really improve our response to meals because we're burning through our stores. We're making room for more glucose coming in. And even one single exercise um, routine, if it's really, really difficult or like a hit workout, that can improve your insulin sensitivity for up to 24 to 48 hours. So one way to kind of titrate your intake is to time those higher carb meals around exercise because you know you're going to be a little bit more insulin sensitive at those times. So maybe having the sweet potatoes before your walk or timing that sweet potato meal after your strength training exercise. That can just really really improve how your body responds.
0: Hmm. So it's food, movement are the two two of the pillars or sorry.
1: Yes. Yep. So okay. those are two of the pillars and then the okay. other two are really really related, but stress and mm-hmm. sleep. So mm-hmm. when our bodies are under stress, or when we don't have enough sleep, we're going to respond the same way. So chronic sleep deprivation, or even one night of fragmented sleep, is perceived by our body as um, kind of a stressor, right? And when we are stressed, our body is going to respond by doing all of our um, things that we would do if our body was under attack or under threat. So When it comes to stress, if we think about it from a evolutionary standpoint, we would respond to a threat such as being chased by something by reducing our insulin sensitivity and increasing our glucose output. And there's an important reason that we do that. And that's because if we were under a true threat, like being chased by something, we need that fuel from that glucose available to fuel whatever movement we have to do, whether that's flight or fight right? Mm. So when we are under this chronic stress, such as, you know, your job is stressful, or your finances are stressful, or a global pandemic, maybe, Mm. um, or if you just have inadequate sleep, our body's going to respond that same way. And that's going to cause higher responses to certain meals. So you might respond really, really well to something if you have a good night of sleep, but then one poor night of sleep, or even worse, a couple nights of bad sleep, you might have larger, more dramatic glucose responses. And same thing with stress. We can see this affect your average glucose throughout the day, but also every single meal response that you see. So I always think of these four pillars, food, exercise, stress, and sleep, kind of as the pillars that hold up our metabolic health. So even if one of those is off track, that whole structure can kind of suffer as a result. We focus a lot on food, which is super important. That's our biggest influencer. I think it's important just to touch on those other factors and kind of not allow ourselves to neglect those as well.
0: Right. Yeah, that's so fascinating. You mentioned sweet potatoes. So, you know, obviously everybody can react differently to those and can be very healthy. What are some other foods or drinks that are typically seen as very healthy, but actually spike glucose in a lot of people?
1: Yeah. And this is always interesting. I always have to preface by saying no one responds the same. So keep in mind that you have to test your own, but there definitely are some, some trends that I've observed over my time and kind of seeing uh, glucose data from hundreds of people. The first one, which I hate to bust anyone's bubble, but sometimes kombucha, right? I love Mm. kombucha. It's one of my favorites, but remember that it is a liquid carbohydrate, So there's different types of kombucha. Some have a lot of added sugar and some really don't have any at all. So I think that's one thing to look for when you're drinking kombucha. But whenever we are drinking a liquid carbohydrate, that's gonna be very, very quickly digested and absorbed by the body. So carbohydrates in general are our very quick acting sugars, right? We start digesting those as soon as they go into the mouth. We have this enzyme that starts to break those down. And from a glucose standpoint, The quicker we break down our carbohydrates, usually the quicker they're going to be digested and absorbed, causing those spikes in glucose. So, kombucha, liquid carbohydrate, especially if you have this on an empty stomach, right? We're responding very highly to carbohydrates eaten or drank in isolation. So, if you have this drink, nothing else with it, you might have a glucose spike. But um, I've seen some people respond really well to this. So, I think it really depends on the type of kombucha the sugar when you're drinking it. So if it's on an empty stomach and then of course your individual response. So that's Mm -hmm. a really interesting one that sometimes can bum people out.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I, I used to have a big liking for kombucha (laughs) and my husband and I kind of had this little phase and still enjoy it every once in a while now, but it was really a bummer when we would look at the labels on a bunch of them and so many of them just had so much added sugar Um, and others didn't. And yeah, I remember at one time the popular GTs brand, there were a few Mm -hmm. that we liked and they had maybe only six grams of sugar per the entire thing. But then it was very strange. All of a sudden the next week, the same flavors had something like 16 grams of sugar. So I don't know if they mislabeled (laughs) that first, the first batches they had, or maybe if they changed the formulation. Um, But I think that's also just good to be aware of, you know, check your foods, check your labels is kind of a side note, but they're always changing different formulations and typically people like sweeter things. So even something you may think is lower in sugar may eventually, they may change the uh,
1: recipe (laughs) on
0: you without letting you know. 100%
1: 100% I think you know they're doing these things so that they sell and they know that sweet things taste good and they're more likely to sell so that's mm. very very possible that they change the formulation which is really really interesting other things that I've seen kind of have this response where people might think they're a little bit healthier but they have um, higher responses than some people we've all seen those healthy candies right those um, mm. low sugar candies where maybe they have three grams of sugar for the whole bag it seems too good to be true and sometimes it is Again, everyone responds differently, but I've seen a lot of people have really dramatic responses to these healthy candies, even though there's only maybe a couple grams of sugar in a serving. And I think Mm -hmm. there's a couple different reasons behind this. The first is they add a lot of isolated fiber to those. So although the carbohydrate intake might look really low, a lot of the carbs are um, subtracted as a net carb or a net fiber. Um, and that can actually respond or cause that response in your, in your glucose, even though it seems like it's a pretty low carb, uh, meal. So that's one thing to look for again, everyone responds differently. So that's a really fun test to do, especially if it's something that you like. And then the other thing that might be in those products that sometimes can cause a a response is artificial sweeteners. I know you kind of touch on this as well, but when it comes to artificial sweeteners, This is another one where everyone responds extremely differently. Some people have no issues at all with these, but others will have a pretty large glucose response, even though it will say, you know, one gram of sugar or zero grams of sugar. So that seems to be one that um, is worth trying out from person to person. Let's say somebody
0: has uh, kombucha. We'll just roll with that. Um after breakfast, several hours after breakfast, before lunch. So it's kind of on an empty stomach. Mm -hmm. So you said it can really spike your glucose. So we heard some of the long-term effects that kind of having these high peaks and low valleys can have on our metabolic health. But what would be some short-term effects if you're just constantly spiking your blood sugar?
1: Yes. Um, This is probably the one that I think is more motivating, right? We know that these spikes over time can lead to you know, inflammation, microvascular damage, oxidative uh, damage as well. So all of these long-term things, but in the short term, this really influences how we feel throughout the day. So when we think about, again, going back to glucose, trying to stay in this really tightly controlled range, when our glucose is going too high, this causes a lot of pressure on our body to bring that glucose back down. And so when we're working really hard to bring that glucose down, sometimes what can happen is that our body over responds and we can have this dramatic drop in glucose. And this is good, right? Our body is trying to help us stay in that good range, but again, we can overshoot and we can break glucose down a little bit too far. And so when we have those big spikes and those drops, a lot of times we'll feel hungry again, even though we just ate, sometimes we'll have cravings throughout the day or feel like we can't control our hunger. Sometimes we'll just, feel really tired. And this is something that I've experienced in my own data. If I'm having meals that are really, really high in carbohydrates and they're causing those bigger spikes, those larger shifts in glucose can cause us to have energy crashes and kind of feel like we're riding that blood sugar roller coaster all day long. So our body's going to respond by trying to keep glucose up. So if glucose goes up too high, we're going to work really hard to bring it down. If it goes too low, we're going to work really hard to bring it up. And that constant battle of trying to keep it in that ideal range is a lot of work for us. It can make us feel really tired. We don't have a lot of energy to do the things that we want to do. So sometimes just monitoring your glucose and seeing what things cause those bigger spikes or even those larger drops can help you feel better and have just better energy all day long.
0: Yeah, that's so important. I think I talk with clients a lot about being expert noticers, I call it, and kind of connecting the dots and not just chalking things up to chance. So I'll have people tell me, you know, I just always have an energy crash at 4 p.m. or I wake up feeling exhausted. So let's kind of go backwards, right, and connect the dots of where that may have come from. And then if all of a sudden the 4 p.m. energy crash disappears, again, connect the dots. What different changes have you made? What have you done that could have caused that? And I think the continuous glucose monitoring just makes that easier to do, right? Because <laughs> you actually have the data.
1: 100%. I think it, it really paints the picture for you. I always use the example of, you know, if you're just monitoring glucose one time, or even if you don't have glucose monitoring at all, you're really just looking at a snap, snapshot of whether it's your glucose or just how you feel at one moment in time. But when you see that from a high level and you get to see the ins and outs of your glucose all day long, you can put those pieces together. You're seeing kind of like a, a a time-lapse of your data throughout the day and you're able to maybe remove one variable and see how that changes things. If that doesn't work, maybe you can try something else. So I think that's another thing to really encourage or promote in yourself is curiosity. Mm -hmm. So many times we think, Oh, I don't have the answers or, you know, I couldn't find the answer. Um, I don't know what's going on. Maybe something deeper is going on. But really that, that falls in our hands, we can experiment, we can try different things and just approach it with more curiosity and less judgment. And mm-hmm. then hopefully feel a little bit better.
0: Yeah, I love that. I speak to about kind of look at your body as an experiment in a way, almost as if you're a scientist and remove, like you said, the judgment and the shame or the guilt. and come from a place of curiosity. And there is there are different things you can figure out, right? After all the trial and error you're talking about. And I think it's just such a good point that you bring up that no two bodies are exactly the same. Your body won't even be exactly the same today, this Tuesday as next Tuesday, right? We're constantly changing and different things are happening in our lives. So it's great to kind of get as much data as you can about yourself and realize there isn't some one size fits all approach if somebody's telling you <laughs> eat this certain way and follow these exact strict rules they work for everybody then don't listen to that person
1: <laughs> yes exactly if if and if people could take one thing from this conversation it's that you know there's yeah. no one size fits all and really you have the power in your hands and so i really just want to empower people to do that experimentation. We always call it an N equals one, right? Mm -hmm. You are your sample size and um, it's up to you to find what works.
0: Right. You mentioned again, going back to let's say sweet potatoes or kombucha. So some things when eaten in isolation may spike your glucose, but I know Jesse touched on this as well. There are some kind of hacks like pairing Um, I know she posted because of Halloween the other day, an interesting graphic of pairing a few M&Ms with peanuts, for example. So sugar with something like fat could help to kind of mitigate the glucose response. Can you speak to that and just some little hacks, you know, about pairings or... I know she mentioned apple cider vinegar at one point, anything, not that we can hack our way right to glucose success. It really is kind of this whole picture, but any tips you love to just employ yourself or with uh, clients?
1: Yes, I could probably talk your ear off on this all day, but I think the protein and the fat and just adequate meal pairing is one of the most simple, but also effective strategies that almost anyone can do. So why this works, right? When we go back to thinking about carbohydrates as our quickest digesting foods, remember that we can digest and absorb carbohydrates starting in the mouth. So this is purposeful, right? From an evolutionary perspective, there's a reason that we want carbohydrates when we're low blood sugar, that we feel really shaky. It's because we can digest it really, really quickly. So in those situations, carbohydrates on an empty stomach might be really helpful. So think about um, endurance athletes, right? They're using it right now. They need that energy right away. They don't have the time to devote to digesting that protein or that fat or those things that take a little bit longer. That carbohydrate in isolation might work really well for them. But if you're not doing endurance training or um, running a marathon, we might need to use some of these hacks to our advantage. So with that carbohydrate, whatever you choose, the first thing that I always recommend is trying a protein with it. So protein, in contrast to carbohydrates, is slower to digest. So instead of starting in the mouth, it starts later on down further in our digestive system. So pairing that with a quick-acting carb or any carb in general can really slow down that digestion and that absorption and can blunt a glucose spike. So those smaller glucose spikes, uh, kind of those rolling hills of glucose, feel a lot better subjectively than those really large, drastic shifts. So that's a lot easier for our body to cope with. We're not producing or or trying to manage those higher spikes. So protein is number one. So if you can add some eggs or, like you mentioned, a little bit of peanuts, some sort of protein with your carbohydrates, that usually produces a really steady glucose curve the other things we can do add a little bit of fat. So fat is our slowest digesting macronutrient, so adding a little bit of that to your carbohydrates can also blunt that spike. And interestingly, we've also seen this in research with just non-starchy vegetables. So there's been a lot of cool research in individuals with diabetes in which if you have a, you know, big green leafy salad or a plate of vegetables first, Your body can more slowly digest that carbohydrate if you time it after for after those veggies. So Mm. we can pair it well, but also eat sequentially. And what I mean Mm. by that is, you have your plate of your sweet potato, your chicken, and maybe your veggies. Um, Eat the protein first, or your salad first, and then save your starch or your carbohydrate for last. And that's typically going to cause a much more gradual, more steady glucose curve.
0: Are non starchy veggies pretty much not glucose razors for everyone?
1: Most of the time, they produce really, really great responses, especially those leafy greens, like I mentioned. Those usually produce almost no response in glucose. Sometimes we can have individual responses to certain um, foods, you know, but I've really seen minimal responses to non starchy veggies like mushrooms and peppers and um, all those other, um, you know, broccoli, cauliflower, those sorts of things. Everyone, of course, needs to experiment on their own, but for as a general rule, they work pretty well and produce a really, really low response.
0: And is it the same for fats and protein? Those typically don't cause glucose spikes?
1: Typically, no. Sometimes, so with protein, it does have an insulogenic effect. So what we can see sometimes actually from protein-rich meals that are very, very low in carbohydrates is a drop in glucose, which is always really interesting. So it is kind of causing that um, glucose decrease, but really it keeps glucose steady. And so adding it to whatever meal just to have that mixed macronutrient meal can have a really gradual and a lower response. And fat's kind of the same way. So if we think about kind of a normal metabolism, it's sometimes helpful to paint the picture of what's supposed to happen. So when we eat carbohydrates, we know that those have the largest impact on glucose. So we expect a small amount of a glucose increase. I think sometimes when we start to monitor glucose, it can be challenging because we see this increase in glucose and we don't know whether it's a good increase or if it's too high. And that's where monitoring it and kind of having that professional guide you can be really helpful. But just so everyone knows, we do expect some amount of glucose increase that's normal and that's healthy. And then an normal, healthy metabolism, our body is going to respond by secreting insulin, and then our glucose is going to be taken up by the muscle, the liver is going to reduce how much glucose it's putting out into the system, and then we're either going to use that glucose or we're going to store it as glycogen in the liver and the muscles like we talked about. So that's normal. We do expect some amount of glucose increase, but the key is how much, right? If you're monitoring your overall glucose um, curve, we can look at the shape of that and see how you feel. So really use those hacks to our advantage.
0: Since fruits are higher in natural sugar, do you recommend pairing all fruit with some type of fat or protein or are fruits like berries okay to kind of eat on their own when it comes to glucose spikes?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. With berries, they're, they're pretty low glycemic, meaning they produce a, a really low glycemic response. And so most people can have those on an empty stomach and have no issue but I think just to maintain that satiety and help you feel satiated for longer periods of time, adding a little bit of protein, so like some Greek yogurt or some peanut butter, can really help that that snack or that meal take you further throughout the day and really just slow down digestion a little bit. The fruits that cause the bigger responses are almost always your tropical fruits. So if you think about mangoes or pineapple or... Um, Maybe even grapes, those typically cause the largest glucose responses in almost everyone. Some people respond really well, but I would say those are the biggest spike culprits if I had to pick them. And then also your dried fruits, because those are going to be just concentrated amounts of sugar. So they can increase glucose, but not have you feeling as full as a fruit that had all of its fluid intake and just was more uh, filling in that way.
0: So let's say somebody's favorite fruit is mango. What I'm hearing you say is to balance that out, kind of enjoy a small portion with some type of protein or fat. So you still get to enjoy that, but you're mitigating your glucose response.
1: Exactly. Yeah. So if you had mango and you had a little bit of plain Greek yogurt first or some nuts first, and then you went, you know, that still produced maybe a, a higher response than you wanted adding in some of the other hacks, which we can talk about. So for example, going for a walk afterwards, we talked about how muscle stores a lot of our glucose. So again, the more muscle we can use after we eat, the more we can burn through and kind of make room for that incoming glucose. So if you love a food, I always tell people, if it's a food that you love, we can try and find a way that it works in your body. It might be a smaller portion size. We might have to pair it with protein or fat, might have to have that walk afterwards. But a lot of the times we can find a way to make it work for your body if it's something that you love.
0: Do you recommend drinking apple cider vinegar? I know that can be really off-putting to a lot of people. (laughs) Is that something that you work with in your practice or not so much?
1: Yeah, definitely. I think that can be for those that really like apple cider vinegar, it can be a fun experiment and it can be really effective. I will say for my own personal glucose data, it didn't really affect me. So I tried different meals with and without apple cider vinegar and it didn't affect me much. So I think there is that degree of personalization and uh, personal variability there. So it's important to to test, but also it's a really, really low risk option that can really lead to a lower rise in glucose after eating. So it's thought that kind of that acetic acid in the apple cider vinegar can block the enzymes that digest starch. So if you have that before maybe rice or um, the sweet potato, like we talked about, sometimes that can just cause that lower uh, glycemic response and a more steady glucose curve. If you don't like it, like the flavor of it, I can definitely understand that. And so the way that I recommend doing it is just having it with your salad, right? Making a nice vinaigrette with some apple cider vinegar, some olive oil, maybe a little bit of Dijon, um, some salt and pepper, and then just having that on your greens before your meal, because, and then you're getting both benefits. You're hmm. having those greens to blunt your spike and then you're getting the added benefit from that apple cider vinegar. So it's a win-win.
0: Is, does any vinegar work if you're making a salad vinaigrette or does it have to be apple cider vinegar?
1: Yeah. We've seen more benefits with apple cider vinegar. Um, I've also tested, you know, balsamic and didn't see much at all, but you could definitely try other types of vinegar, whatever you like. Some people also see benefits from just having lemon juice in their water or lemon juice on their salad. It's kind of that acid that, that we see with the effect. So um, it could be fun to experiment with different types.
0: Yeah. If somebody doesn't have a CGM What are some best practices they can follow or how could they know if a certain food or a food combination or apple cider vinegar, for example, is working for them? How will they feel differently after a meal?
1: Yeah, and I think that's really hard, but you do have to be in tune with your body. So I think the first step is to establish a baseline and just see, are there any meals that make me feel tired? Are there any times of day where I'm feeling low energy or do I feel shaky at all throughout the day? Do I feel sleepy? Uh, You know, you mentioned that 4 p.m. kind of drop in energy, kind of assessing where you're at and kind of logging when you feel those moments and then addressing the meal or the habits that come before that. So a lot of times we'll see from lunch, maybe we'll have a larger meal at lunch and then we see a drop in energy a couple hours afterwards. And so sometimes eliminating one of the components of that meal and then just testing to see, do you still have that drop? is it improved? Is it uh, worsened? Kind of what happens when you change one variable there? And then Mm. you can experiment with other things, right? How was my sleep? Maybe I'll prioritize going to sleep an hour earlier and have that same meal and see if it's the meal or if it's my sleep quality. Or maybe like we mentioned with exercise, instead of sitting after your meal, try standing or try walking so that your body can utilize that glucose and hopefully have that smaller glucose curve how do you feel then? You know, I think just asking those questions and being open to experimenting and, of course, not getting frustrated. I think sometimes um, there's so many variables and factors that it can get frustrating without the CGM, but there's definitely ways around it um, and things that you can do even even without.
0: And I think it's such a good point that you're speaking about there. When you're doing the experimentation, if you are kind of approaching it like a scientist, you do have to kind of change one variable at a time, Right. And yes. so it can be a slower process to kind of gather the data, um, but fun at the same time. If you take if you take that mindset about it,
1: yes, definitely. Either way, you're learning more about your body, and the more you be, can become in tune with your body and and kind of feel those changes, the the more meaningful those small little swaps can can be.
0: What about alcohol? I know that that's a hot topic in terms of just people wanting to enjoy alcohol, but not feel maybe as terrible after it, obviously in moderation. Um, Do all types spike your glucose or is it mostly the very sugary cocktails?
1: Yes. So that's always an interesting one. And one that I tell people to experiment with. Sometimes when people put a CGM on, they feel like they want to be perfect. They want their glucose to be amazing the whole time. But really, you just want to try all the things that you're curious about so that you have that data and you can use it going forward, even if you're not wearing a CGM. So with Mm -hmm. alcohol specifically, we normally see increases or spikes in glucose, just like you mentioned, from those really sugary cocktails or beer. So those higher carbohydrate drinks, those usually lead to an immediate spike after drinking. However, in contrast, you know, if we have liquor, like a really dry wine, um, some of those low sugar alcoholic beverages, what's interesting is sometimes we'll see an actual decrease in glucose. So we'll see glucose, you know, really steady, and then you have that glass of wine, and then it drops. And what's going on behind that is that we have no storage space in our body for alcohol. So whenever we have alcohol, that's going to take uh, oxidative priority. So our body's going to process that before it processes anything else. So the body's going to digest that alcohol really, really quickly. And sometimes what we'll see is that, say you have that glass of wine, and then you have your dinner, maybe it's an Italian dinner, and you go out and you have pasta and garlic bread and a dessert. What's uh, sometimes confusing is you'll see that immediate decrease in glucose, even though you had that really rich Italian meal, but we'll see this gradual increase overnight, and then maybe even higher values while you're fasting in the morning because of that alcohol. So if we go back to alcohol taking that oxidative priority and our body digesting that first, that means everything else that we eat, when we have that alcohol, is going to be put on the back burner. So the body is going to break that down later on, and it's going to look like you have this delayed increase in glucose. Sometimes this doesn't affect people, so we can really find your alcohol tolerance. So you, know, you might do well with one glass of wine and not have that gradual increase or higher fasting values but maybe two glasses puts you over the edge. So that's where it's really fun to experiment and see what's your limit and where do you feel good with, as you probably know, alcohol can also affect your sleep quality. So that's a a confounding variable as well. If you're having that poor night of sleep, that's going to reduce your insulin sensitivity for that next day. And you're having kind of that higher carb meal. It's hard to know what that response is coming from, but what I usually tell people just to kind of experiment um, and find your baseline first. But if you are going out for alcohol, try and have it be a lower sugar drink if you can. Avoid those sugary mixers because that is a lot of work on your body and can kind of have that higher glucose spike. And then if you're gonna eat with it, maybe choose something that's higher in protein so that you're not having those carbohydrates put on the back burner and digested later on.
0: Yeah, that all makes sense. Those are those are great tips, especially going into the holiday season, right? When <laughs> there's probably gonna be more cocktails yeah. around. More parties, hopefully. Uh, What I see people posting all the time, probably just also the nature of who I follow on Instagram, but um, just blood sugar balancing and do this, and do that. What are some myths and misconceptions about balancing your blood sugar that really kind of myth you?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I think there's a big one that stands out to me that came to my mind as, as soon as you said that. And that's eating every two to three hours to keep your glucose Mm -hmm. stable. I don't, I don't know if you've seen this one on your, on your social at all. Yeah. I think it's becoming less popular, but I know, you know, just from some sources that I've followed, they tell you to eat every two and three hours to keep your glucose stable so that you're not um, stimulating those larger responses. And there is some truth to that, right? If you're eating more regularly in smaller meals, maybe it's less work for your body. So you don't have those higher spikes But when we think about going back to how we process meals, this is going to stimulate an insulin response every two to three hours. And our body needs time to rest, to digest, to have that insulin kind of get back to baseline. When we're eating regularly, when we're grazing throughout the day, we're stimulating that response over and over. And we're not allowing our body time to rest and digest in between meals. And I mean, there there are certain people that certainly this works well for. if you have a history of bariatric surgery and you have a smaller stomach, or maybe you have delayed gastric emptying, so you can only eat tiny, tiny amounts, then maybe that, you know, every two-hour meal would work well for you. But I would say for most people, this can get us into a dangerous kind of grazing, eating all the time um, pattern. And if your goal is weight loss or if you're struggling with weight management at all, this could make it really, really hard to achieve your weight loss goals. So my thought is measure it, see how you're doing with that every two to three hours. And then if your glucose isn't back down to baseline, that might be a sign that you need more time in between your meals, a little bit more fasting, just um, in between meals to keep glucose kind of in that, that moderate peak range that we're looking for. Mm.
0: Well, I could literally talk to you all day, but (laughs) we're almost at top of the hour here. Uh, So the last question I ask each of my guests is, in your opinion, what does it mean to make the health investment?
1: I love this question so much. Um, And I'm glad that you asked this. I think this is really important for everyone to think about and just to consider. My thought after my experience um, would be just don't wait for someone else to tell you what's right for you. I really want to empower people to take action and be curious and put their metabolic health first. Like we mentioned at the very beginning of this, you know, the majority of chronic lifestyle-related conditions, you know, up to 80% can be delayed or prevented from early lifestyle interventions, like monitoring your glucose or making those changes like we talked about today. There are so many amazing professionals out there that will help you and kind of guide you through that. And I do think that's important just to have someone there that knows um, what might be right for you but also don't discount what you know about your body. So you are in control of your body and there's no one size fits all diet. So have fun experimenting, work with someone that will respect your autonomy, but also support your preferences and kind of guide you in the right direction. And just don't wait until later, you know, your health starts now.
0: I'm so grateful for everything you shared with myself and my listeners today. And I'd love for them to know where can they follow and find out more about you and your work?
1: Absolutely. So if you want to learn more about Nutrisense or get your own CGM, you can visit us on our website at Nutrisense, so dot io. But we're also on Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram at Nutrisense.io. And we're posting tips, strategies, studies, You know, I think we have a really cool community. So if you don't want to get a CGM, you could just follow us to still get some benefits there. So um, don't hesitate to reach out if you're curious to learn more.
0: Awesome. Well, I can 100% assure you this is going to be a hit episode because Jesse's was great. And now we have this one to piggyback on it. Grateful for your time today, Carly. And I look forward to staying connected.
1: Thank you so much. Thanks for what you do. And thanks for having me.
0: Well, that's all for today. Thanks again for joining me here on the Health Investment Podcast. I'm so grateful for each and every one of my listeners. On your way out, remember to hit subscribe so that you never miss an episode. See you next week. All content in this podcast was created for general informational purposes only by a non-physician. None of the content should serve as a substitute for professional medical advice,